welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. Today is our Tuesday not-so-deep-dive episode uh, where we analyze one stock, and we actually ingest, perform a deep dive. Uh, it's not actually a shallow dive of uh, research of a company, but we're going to cover its business model, ownership, financials, future growth opportunities, major risks, really how the business works, what the stock's trading at, what we think of management, what we think its future prospects could look like, hope you or help you as a listener get a better perspective on the company. And today we're talking about Discover Financial, maybe one of the cheapest looking stocks that we've looked at so far uh, this year, but one with a little bit of meat on the bone as it is a lender and some people don't like the brand. Maybe we'll probably talk about why we think the stock's trading at a low PE or maybe why they're over-earning, stuff like that, little teaser. But before we get into it, I want to say that for any listener that is interested in this company or really is interested in learning more about the companies we cover, I would recommend subscribing to our free newsletter, which has a link in the show notes uh, for this episode. It'll give you all our Basically, the notes we write down for the episode, we copy them over to a Substack and we post them out for free. We have charts. We'll have stuff in this one like Discover's total loans outstanding, Discover's loan, credit card loans as a percentage of total U.S. loans, stuff like that. Really, really interesting. So that will help you, I guess. It really helps us digest more of the information as we're recording the episode. So I think for listeners, having that visualization and the stuff to read can help you digest more of the information as well. And it's a pretty quick read as well. We send them out Tuesday mornings along with these episodes. All right, Ryan, how are you doing? And why don't you get into Discover Financial? Anything else before we get started? No, I'm doing well. Uh, I think we're on the cusp of NVIDIA about to report as we record this. So our fate is being... That's right. Uh, potentially discussed right now. We don't own NVIDIA, but uh, Just civilization. it seems so, to uh, <laughs> determine the yeah how, how the entire world lives their lives for the next three months until we do it all over again. But yeah, let's talk about Discover Financial. Um, kind of two separate businesses here, but I would say just in general, it's pretty much just a bank is kind of the way to look at it. And I know banks sometimes bore people, but there's also... Basically, they have a digital banking segment and then they have payment services. So I'll start with the banking because it makes up the majority of their business. But Discover is a digital digital only bank with $115 billion in total deposits. Most of those deposits are direct to consumers. So people with savings accounts at Discover, uh, people with certificates of deposits, that kind of thing. there's also brokered deposits, which is basically third-party securities companies um, are, will put their customers or their clients' funds into um, Discover branded savings accounts or deposit accounts. And 
it's uh, it's slightly more expensive than direct to consumer, but in general, it's still a pretty low cost form of deposits. And then there's the last one is just general borrowings, which come in a, in a variety of different ways. But really, the bulk here is direct to consumer deposits and the broker deposits that, that I talked about. That those two in total make up about 83, 85% of all the uh, deposits that they have. Um, like any bank though, the objective here is to take those deposits and lend them out at higher rates and pocket the difference. The way Discover does that is primarily through credit cards, which makes up 80% of their total loan volume. Um, they also provide private student loans, personal loans. There's even a small home loan segment but really they are in the credit card business and within the credit card business discover is a little unique in that they offer cashback credit programs with no annual fees so a lot of companies nowadays it feels like they're trying to go more towards the american express style of of building out a credit card program which is you know you have an annual fee which gets you access to all these really uh, exciting cashback programs but really discovers trying to target more of the middle-class American. The former CEO, Roger Hothschild, described it like this. He said, we might be more like Toyota and American Express may be more like Mercedes. So they're, they're really kind of going wide, but offering attractive credit card programs to most Americans. Now, um, uh, on the yeah. loan portfolio, or excuse me, the deposits, you mentioned $115 billion. Are you including just the other borrowings into that? Because yeah, sorry, that's not those deposits. Are like, it's total loans, but majority of that is customer deposits that they it's they're paying interest on. Basically. Yeah, they're paying interest on all those, but that some small portion, which we will have in the newsletter for anyone referencing or anyone that's interested, uh, is basically just bonds or security securitized. Excuse me, I can't talk today. Securitized borrowings, but continue, Ryan. Yeah, and I think most people probably understand how credit card programs work. You know, you buy on credit, which is afforded to you by whoever your credit card issuer is or the issuing bank, which in this case is Discover. They're also the payments network for the cards, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, they afford you credit. If you have carried balances, you pay interest on those carried balances and credit card programs done right from what I understand, can be very lucrative, but there's a lot of credit card programs that are apparently done wrong in the banking world. Well, just, one, one bad year and you might blow up, right? So it can be a great business until you make a, a couple of mistakes that really haunt you. Exactly. And Discover's been in the credit card business since really its inception. So they've been doing this for a long time. They have really earned high returns on equity. I mean, the fees that people pay on carry balances for credit cards are pretty high. You're paying a pretty high level of interest and the cost of deposits for Discover is pretty low. So the net interest margins or the difference there is, is really higher than you'll see at a lot of banks. I think, I don't know if I've come across kind of a higher net interest spread in the banks that I've looked at. I mean, we look at Ally, they certainly don't have that high of a net interest margin. Same with other companies. Now, obviously, yeah. there's a little more risk in that portfolio in, in sort of a recession potentially. But um, yeah, that, that means we'll talk about this managing the net charge off rate, which I think you were, if you didn't mention, I'll say it again, 3.2% or excuse me. Yeah, that's their that's net correct. charge off rate. Managing that 
can be vital for them as it could you know rise significantly and quickly if they don't underwrite really correctly it could rise to five six seven eight percent or if they do it well it can slide down to about three percent where it is today and they can be an incredibly profitable operation exactly now on the payment services side of things discover operates really its own several of its own payments networks so sim think business model wise think visa mastercard american express it's very similar they have their own payments rails this means that they're processing and settling transactions that are made across their various networks these networks include the pulse network which is primarily for debit transactions the actual discover network which is more all transactions used by discover credit cards and then the diners club network which is just trivial and really not a large business they've acquired both the Pulse Network and the Diners Club Network in the last 10 years. Um, in total, the Discover Networks have, have about the same coverage as Visa and MasterCard in the United States, like in terms of merchants, it's really quite similar. Discover is accepted at 99% of merchants in the US. Um, and it processes, or the, in total, they processed over half a trillion dollars in volume in 2022. However, I'm not going to go into that much detail here on the rest of that operation because it accounts for less than 10% of Discover's pre-tax profit. So it's really not that important, but it's just, I think, worth noting that like American Express, it's a closed loop system. So they capture a lot of the value in transactions. Um, if you want to learn more about what networks like these actually do, so what is the processing and settling of transactions, um, I recommend checking out our Visa episode. We went into pretty good depth on basically that entire process but as well as american express we've covered both this year yeah let's talk quickly about the history here the discover card was initially introduced by sears in 1985 which is kind of interesting which sears was at the time the largest retailer in the u.s it's kind of crazy now to have seen the demise of sears and realize all the value like they had their hands in everything and it would have been so hard to think this business is going to be worthless good in lesson. 30 years. Yeah. 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 It's a good lesson. Yeah. Yeah. 30 years from now, you underwrite a lot of wide moat businesses and you go, hey, yeah, 30 years from now, they'll still be around. Sometimes they're not. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so Sears, a couple of years prior to introducing the card, had acquired Dean Witter, which was, from what I understand, I think it was in that movie with Will Smith where- Basically, it's like a brokerage firm. Maybe there was more to it, but um, they acquired Dean Witter and they acquired a company called Greenwood Trust, which has now become Discover Bank. And they were trying to build out sort of this financial services division. And so Greenwood Trust at the time came up with this idea to launch a no-fee cashback credit card. I think it was mostly intended to just spur spending at Sears, um, but there was kind of some early struggles. It didn't really get that big of a lift off. And so Sears spun off Dean Witter and Discover in 1993 as its own publicly traded company. Four years after they were spun off, Dean Witter Discover and Company, which was one company at the time, merged with Morgan Stanley. The full name was like Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley Dean Witter Discovering Company. That was like the full Morgan Stanley name. It's funny how much merger activity there's been in the finances world, but um it continued to grow under the Morgan Stanley brand uh, while it was there. DFS, which 
Discover had been officially kind of its own thing at this point, uh, acquired the Pulse Network as well. Then it was finally spun off as a separate entity in 2007 into what we, this is what we know as no Discover Financial Services as today. A year later, they also acquired the Diners Club International. And since then, they've added student loan, student loan operations, home loan operations, maybe one other. But I want to talk more about what's really happened in the last 12 months. Um, so over the last year, there has been a lot of change around the C-suite at DFS. And it initially it wasn't really that clear why there was this much change. Now, within the last six months, really, and, and really most of this quarter, DFS announced to shareholders that the FDIC is, I put investigating here, but it sounds, they kind of say it's a review. So I don't know, don't know what to call it exactly, but FDIC is investigating them around insufficient risk management and compliance departments and processes. And then they also stated that they misclassified certain merchants um, into like the wrong classification or wrong category, which made them pay more than they should have in interchange fees. And they say that they caught themselves doing this, but now the CFPB or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is going to be issuing them a consent order. Essentially, they're reviewing or investigating in air quotes, um, uh, discover as well. So in response to these investigations slash reviews, the board elected to pause the share buyback program, which has been significant over the last decade, and remove the CEO and replace him with an interim CEO for the time being, along with a lot of other management turnover. To give some context on the shares share repurchase program, not quite as high as Lowe's or AutoZone over the last 20 years, but over the last 10, they've reduced share count by almost 50%. And over the last two years specifically, it's been trading at kind of this depressed multiple, which has allowed them to buy back 15% of their stock in two years. Right now, the stock trades at, well, I'll just kind of, this is, I'm spoiling Brett's segment here, but it's trading at six times earnings. So if they were to earn that over the next 12 months, which doesn't look like they will, but if they were, and they still had the buyback in place, they could potentially cancel out or buy back more than 15% of their shares outstanding. So even though the shares out the share buyback program hasn't been as significant as Lowe's or AutoZone, which have been best in class really, moving forward, if it's reinstated and all things go well, it certainly could be. Yep. And I would mention that they do pay out a little bit higher of a dividend than some of these other share cannibals, specifically AutoZone, which I think doesn't pay one. If I remember correctly, they're at about a 3% yield. I think that sets us up for you know, nicely for the rest of this episode. The two most important things we're going to be discussing, maybe debating, maybe deciding you know, how positive or negative we think it is, are one, the recent investigations and the you know investment and compliance stuff that they need to make, as, as well as the CEO leaving abruptly, which if as of our recording on August 23rd, that was barely a week ago. So it's really fresh. They just had an analyst call that we'll probably discuss as well. And the second thing we're going to discuss is how much are they over earning, if anything, right now? Today's episode is presented by the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service. 
The Science of Hitting was founded by Alex Morris, who spent a decade working as a buy-side equities analyst before launching his own service in early 2021. You've heard him here on the show a number of times, but Alex produces really, really high-quality equity research. And in addition, he provides 100% transparency into all his portfolio decision-making. We were early subscribers to the Science of Hitting research service, and we genuinely believe that Alex produces research that is on par with top Wall Street analysts at a fraction of the cost. I mean, the fact that you also get complete portfolio transparency and 100% accountability is just icing on the cake. Effectively, you're outsourcing a full-time equities analyst role for just $349 per year. Brett and I both pay for the service on our own, and we can tell you that it's honestly worth the money. Some of the companies that Alex covers includes Microsoft, Netflix, and Meta, Roku, Costco, Match Group, Berkshire, tons of others. So if you're interested, check out the TSOH Investment Research Service today at thescienceofhitting.com. All right, let's move into industry and competition. This is a very simple one. I think people understand this one, especially in the United States, and this is a US-centric company, but they do have operations around the world where they let people pay with Discover cards. They operate in the credit card issuing business and the payment processing business, as Ryan mentioned above. Listeners are going to be well aware of the main competition and Payment processing, that is Visa, MasterCard, and American Express in that order. And then you're also going to be well aware of, since these are very consumer-facing products, of the credit card issuing companies, which are American Express, Chase, Bank of America, Capital One, the airlines, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the airlines and hotels are partners. In payment processing, Discover is a very distant fourth in process volumes. They're much lower than Visa, much lower than MasterCard, and even much lower than American Express, which does serve sort of a niche, but they're high spending niche. Last quarter, Discover processed a total of $146 billion, which seems high. But when you look at Visa, which processed $3.8 trillion, you realize that they are much, much lower on process volumes. And as Ryan mentioned above, their main business model is not And this is different than American Express. American Express makes a lot of money on discount revenue, which is just how they describe the uh, payment processing revenue that they make. Discover doesn't make much money on that. They make a lot of money basically as a bank, earning the net interest margin on their credit card loans, focusing on high FICO score consumers. and But looking at those high FICO FICO score consumers that need some loans, the main way they make money is, again, actually making the credit card loans and not on the process volume. Um, if we look at their market share within U.S. credit card lending, I took basically their loan receivables at the end of the year and then at the end of last quarter and divided it by the uh, St. Louis, whatever that website's called, Fred's in total estimate of credit cards outstanding in the United States. And I got their market share and it's been very steady at just under 10%, right around 9% since 2018. So their market share there has been steady and it's much, much higher than on the payment processing side. Now, here's a discussion question I have. You know, we can look at their compliance stuff. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about management. We'll talk about whether they're over-earning. But is there any foreseeable reason why Discover's market share of credit card loans is going to change over the next decade? Do you think like anything from 2018 to 2022 was a strange period where something's changed and now they're going to start losing market share? Do you have any thoughts on that? Buy now, pay later. All right. (laughs) I'm saying it in jest, but it's like, I guess maybe, I'd probably say no, but maybe 
there are a lot of companies that seem to be getting into card programs. Um, Maybe the the airline cards seem to be doing very well. Maybe that could. Apple's tried to push into it too. um, Yep. But let me look up. Let me look up. If things haven't changed yet, I don't see why they would. Let me, yeah, because those, I mean, airlines were investing in their credit cards in 2018. I'm going to look up when the Apple card is launched because it actually might be legitimately in 2018. Um, Apple card launched. Let's see, Google. Yeah, August 20th, 2019. So I guess one year later, but Discover's market share has been, you know, been very, very steady along that time period. Let's move to management ownership. This is a very important part for this uh, recording. Uh, given the timing, it's going to be an interesting section to talk about. And it's probably the most important thing. It's probably the biggest overhang on the stock right now. So since it's spun out as a public company, Discover has had steady management at the helm from 20, or excuse me, 2004 to 2018. So 14, 15 years, the company was led by David Nelms, who then gave the position over to Roger Hothschild in 2018. And then he was the CEO until the summer. Both had been there since 1998. Ryan discussed how things had been running smoothly, but then there was this weird thing that happened last week where the company announced that Hothschild had resigned and the company was appointing an interim CEO from the board of directors. If you listen to the analyst call on that day of the announcement, after a bunch of peppering questions, because they're all about this, right? The interim CEO from the board of directors basically said that Hothschild was fired for cause uh, without specifically saying that, but he kind of alluded to it for the recent investigations on account misclassifications and this FDSC probe. I don't know if it was a, you know, a nice little, I don't want to call it a present, but something to appease regulators. I don't know if they forced it to happen, but it was very unexpected because Hothschild has been in the company since 1998. He was the protege of Nelms probably since 2004. And both those people are gone now. And they're looking for a new CEO. And we don't know how bad these classifications will be. It seems like they're not going to be, but we'll talk about that later, I guess. Specifically on the management stuff, how nervous or concerned do these make you, if at all? Well... It's kind of, the thing is like when, when you think about just the actual numbers, so the processing volume, it accounted for less than 1% of Discover's interchange revenue, the, the, the inner, like the swipe fees that they were misclassifying. So it doesn't seem, and I mean, their interchange revenue is not even that big to begin with. And they brought it up to regulators themselves. I thought that was positive. Yeah, so it doesn't seem like it'd be that big of a deal. But the fact that they've been so talkative about it, the fact that they feel the need to like double compliance spend over the next two years tells me that there's probably something more going on under the hood. Like if they had to fire their CEO, it's not because they accidentally miscategorized less than 1% of their interchange revenue. I think it's probably there's something bigger going on. That's my concern is that it either feels like a massive overreaction or I don't understand the gravity of the situation. Yeah. There's yeah. On the one hand you're looking at, you're like, okay, well you fire CEO over the stuff that's happened since he became CEO, which they said they underinvested in compliance stuff generally among other things since 2018 that regulators are going to 
look for them to invest in more and they have been over the last few years and so they will over the next couple of years as well is probably going to grow faster than their top line but on the other hand it could be a positive for the company or board of directors culture because it seems to be the reaction or their strategy seems to be much better than say a wells fargo who got very defensive during this time period they admitted you know wells fargo Obviously, people, or maybe obviously not, but uh, some people know the Wells Fargo story. They were kind of, I don't know, they tried to downplay it constantly. Maybe Discover's overplaying it. Maybe Discover is just taking a better route of being apologetic. They're saying we made a bunch of mistakes. I kind of like that, but on the, like you mentioned, the CEO getting fired over this small thing does make me nervous because. What else is there, if anything, under the hood? We don't know. That uncertainty is probably what's driving the stock down right now. And That's, okay, the other I, thing I, is I, we don't know if, it, if there's anything there. I I kind of have a feeling it's not gonna be. There's not gonna be much, but it's there's definitely a chance that there's something significant there that's gonna hurt the earnings power for the, at least you know for multiple years. Yeah, and if it's so insignificant, like if it's not that big of a deal, and why did they? pause their repurchase program when they're so well capitalized so well i think they did that because the regulators get upset with financial companies buying back stock when they're under investigation and stuff like that so i think they just want to make sure that they're not angering them could be but it also i don't know that's the part where it's like they were like no we we did this all internally we chose to do all this and then it's like were they forced to stop their buyback program or did they choose to do that? Cause I, I would have a hard time believing they chose to do that when they're also bragging about how well capitalized they are. I don't know. It just makes I it think seem they chose like it to, to make themselves look good to the regulators. I, I don't think that's a concern to me. The CEO leaving is a concern for me. Or at least the other thing is during that analyst call, they asked and they said like one of the analysts kind of pressed them and said, you know, you're talking about how robust your, CEO pipeline is your potential CEO pipeline, like how it's a job that a lot of people are going to want. And then it's like, if that's the case, then why are you here? Why are we talking to you, an interim CEO? You know, other yeah. companies were able to promote instantly after problems like this. Yeah, I guess we, we don't know. They could have been forced by the regulators to fire the CEO, right? So that probably, and you can't hire the next CEO overnight, even though if you have a candidate of like 10 people. So we'll see. But I think. From our perspective, I think it's probably clear that we should be looking for in the next few months a permanent hire to be made if it's a great position. And if there's, you don't want someone, right? Because if they can't get someone to come in, that means that the CEOs are doing their due diligence and saying, wait, there's something here that we're missing. They're not telling. It would just be a red flag, I think. All right. But as I mentioned, we don't know who the CEO will be now. So we're in a little bit of a limbo period. It's a bit strange. I wouldn't expect, though, the board of directors to change its compensation philosophy. So I'm going to look at the proxy standard from last year. It's for a lot of executives that aren't there anymore, or at least the CEO that's not there anymore. But I think they're going to do the same sort of strategy for this new one. And they have the classic trifecta of base salaries, annual bonuses, and long-term RSUs and PSUs. For anyone that doesn't know, PSUs, performance stock units, they are tied to some sort of metric and then they get vested or, excuse me, eligible to you know get sold, however it goes. We look at the annual bonuses. They are based on profit before taxes. And then the PSUs are based on cumulative earnings per share performance over a three-year period. 
I think those are fine targets. I do worry about lending executives getting incentivized to juice kind of short to midterm profits, which I guess a three-year period or an annual period is. But it hasn't been a problem with Discover Financial before. They've been profitable throughout a cycle. I think they were unprofitable for about two quarters in 2009, but I don't have the, the notes in front of me. That could be wrong. But again, at least through a cycle, humility, they they stayed profitable. And I like the earnings per share number because that incentivizes them to continue the buyback. Now, lastly, on the ownership section, they have a ton of passive ownership, which I think is a big positive because it gives the executive team virtually unlimited liquidity to continue its buyback in perpetuity. For example, if we look at just BlackRock and Vanguard, they own over 20% of the shares outstanding. And that's a great source of <laughs> shares to buy back. All right, Ryan, let's hit the earnings unless you have anything else to follow up on management and ownership. No, I think we discussed it pretty thoroughly. The, I mean, the concern is really that- It's um, confusing. It's up in the air. It's like- uh, We don't know we what's don't, going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and typically when, I don't know, there's just a lot of bad examples of when banks aren't necessarily clear with what's going on. Well, sorry there's something really horrible going on under the scenes um, or behind the scenes. When we look at earnings, I wanted to bring this up. This is, well, I'm not sharing my screen, but um, their earnings per share, which is really kind of the figure to track here. Um, over the last 10 years, net income is up 62%. So, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's kind of meager growth, a little slow. Now, net interest margins have contracted in the last 12 months, so it's kind of maybe not indicative of what they could be generating, but 62%, it's not bad over 10 years. It's it's fine, especially for a bank. And, and it was a mature bank. Like It's not like this is a small business You know, 10 years ago. Earnings per share, up 200%. So on 62% net income growth, Earnings per share were up 200%. That is really all the buyback program right there. And it shows how they've been allocating capital, not to mention there's also been dividends along the way, which is nice to see. When we look at the most recent quarter, basically what's going on right now, they're still growing their loan volume. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they say they're tightening their credit standards, but they're getting a lot of loan applications and finding a lot of ways to lend. Um, but they're seeing net charge-off rates kind of accelerate. So in the most recent quarter, the net charge-off rate was 3.2%, which is basically, um, I'm not super well versed in all the banking terms, but expected losses is maybe what you could call it. Um, expected losses on the loan book. Last year, it was at 1.8%. It actually accelerated quarter over quarter too, which is kind of one of the big reasons that the stock's kind of selling off. Um, the other part that was talked about here is, I mean, the earnings is really a byproduct of the net interest margin, right? So, you know, if your net charge off rate is going up, it's going to contract your net interest margin. But it's also worth remembering that banks have operating expenses. And for Discover, they're investing a lot more in their compliance and risk departments, which means they're going to see pretty big operating expense growth, which is also going to further compress net interest margins. So, or not, not, not in net interest, but net margins in total. So you're gonna see well maybe unless they grow quicker, but based on probably, their for, based on yeah. their forward guidance, net margins will contract. So yeah. earnings per share over the last 12 months has been sort of $14.50. Today the stock's like $80, $88, something like that. 
I think there's a path to them getting back to that at some point, but over the next 12 months, it's probably going to look a lot worse. Yeah. And I think that the debate is how worse, because they definitely were as all a lot of these lenders were, they were over earning during the pandemic when a lot of people weren't spending money and they could eat, everyone could pay back their loans and people got stimulus checks. But now the debate is whether it's a normalization back to the pre-pandemic period or things are going to get worse as people get concerned time and time again about a recession hurting a consumer lending business. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll probably talk about what our thoughts are on that, on the normalization versus it getting worse than that. Cause that's what the companies always say. They talk about a normalization of a loan book, but then a lot of the investors, and we know this time and time again with investors, we're guilty of it. You extrapolate the last few quarters and you see that net charge up rates are growing and you go, Oh, this is going to continue in perpetuity until the business loses all its money. But I think it's probably somewhere in the middle there. All right. Anything else or yeah. Balance sheet next balance sheet. I mean, really kind of with, with banks, Earnings and balance sheet are pretty much one and the same, really. You're, you know, you're earning from your balance sheet. But in terms of like capitalization, sort of what's going to happen in a bad scenario, I, I think maybe the important thing to look at for banks is, you know, they provide that CET one, which is the common equity tier one capital ratio that's basically equity capital plus how much cash they're reserving compared to their risk-bearing assets. And there's a regulatory minimum that they have to have. They're well above that. They have 11.7%, which is pretty strong from what I understand. But really, what I like to keep track of is how much, what's their reserve rate, which is the reserve rate is just money the bank's putting aside in case some of the loans aren't paid versus their net charge-off rate. And so at Discover, the total loan reserve rate this quarter was 6.8% and the net charge-off rate was 3.2%. So it's 2.1 times it's NCO or net charge-off rate. I think that's fairly conservative. Um, you know, there, There's always the risk with a bank that things hit the fan really, really quickly. But yeah, everyone goes, what if see, it gets worse? What if it gets worse? And it could, yeah. Um, it's kind of, you know, feels pretty well capitalized. It seems like they have a lot of cash reserves. They're also passing the buyback program, which should allow them to kind of add that cash buffer um, and, the, and, the new, and invest in compliance. Yeah. yeah. Then the new rules that are getting debated, we don't know what's ever going to fall off from the spring debacle with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, but they said they're basically compliant with all the stuff that's been discussed already. So they're pretty conservative compared to a lot of the banks that failed. And they actually saw an influx of deposits. So or this spring, so not a giant concern around the deposits fleeing. Uh, they seem to be pretty well entrenched once you join the Discovery ecosystem. All right, let's move to valuation. Yeah, simple, very simple for a bank like this. You just got to use the PE ratio. But again, as we talked about, the business is a little cyclical and... We don't know how we know that they were over earning in 2021 and 2022, but the question is how much. And today, I think investors are betting that they over earned a lot because when we have a market cap currently of $22 billion, if we look at a PE on their trailing, I believe I use trailing 12 month basis, but it's either trailing or their 2022 numbers, we're trading at a PE of 5.7. And Look, I think investors are betting that it's going to get a lot worse. Now they have a lot, a lot of room 
to still be profitable. So I think the question is, it's a tough one where you're kind of betting on how much on what other investors are betting and the handicapping there, which I guess is what we're always doing. But in this case, it's pretty clear cut and dry because on the deposit side of things, on kind of just their loan book side of things of keeping it steady and steadily growing and whatever, like it's, it's not, that's not a concern really at all. It's how are these loans going to perform over the next five, six years? Or how is that, you know, that engine of loans going to perform for the next five or six years as they cycle through with student loans coming up, interest rates coming up in general, all that stuff that everyone's concerned on. Yeah. I think what's interesting is, you know, you see this with Ally and mm-hmm. you've seen it with Discover and maybe SoFi to some extent. Capital One. I mean, there's some others out there. Yeah. But I'm seeing, I'm talking about how throughout COVID and even before COVID, the consumer direct or the direct to consumer deposits have grown as a percentage of their deposit base. But during that time, they've also seen kind of this rise in net. Tr- they at first during COVID, they saw all their loans getting paid back. There was basically like no zero net charge offs, and they. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but basically well, you had I this huge. You, are you about to yeah. say they had, didn't have to pay any interest on those because the rates were zero? That's yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of saw this really big expansion of net interest margins, and I was seeing it compress really quickly because maybe there's higher spike in net charge-offs due to the rapid rise in interest rates. As it becomes normalized, I, I think a lot of people aren't maybe giving credit to the lower cost of deposits that they're getting now with the direct-to-consumer. Whereas if they're getting a consistent, steady yield or net interest margin on their loan book, I should say yield, they're, they're going to be better positioned than before the pandemic, but you just it's kind of hard to see that because there was such this balloon, there was such a big balloon in net interest margins during the pandemic. Yep, and the, I probably phrased that really poorly, but I hope. I, yeah, and it all comes down to at the end of the day, how do you think their loans are going to perform? And I think we'll get to it, but my thought is you got to look at their history of underwriting. And yes, the CEO stuff is a bit of a concern, but. Given the history of this company, they've been very, very conservative with their underwriting. Currently, they're underwriting 5% unemployment for the reserves. So I think people are probably overestimating. Like, I, I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised, and this could be a bad cold takes exposed for us, for ourselves, if uh, I look back a year from now. I wouldn't be surprised if they have, you know, they if we don't hit that 5% unemployment, they they say, oh, we over-reserved. Now we have more money to buy back stock. But let's move to anecdotal evidence. What do you think of this from a consumer side of things, Ryan? It seems steady, low growth. They haven't really gained market share, but curious what your thoughts are. I think it's got some pretty attractive credit cards and uh, credit card offerings for consumers, especially for like first-time credit card users. Students, um, yeah students, people that don't want to pay a big annual fee, maybe they don't have the income to do that yet. This is a really good solution and it's a good way to get started into the credit card universe. And if you find that it works really well for you and you're getting good rewards, then they're probably pretty sticky, those uh, those credit card borrowers or credit card users. Yeah, this leads to, that kind of leads to another anecdotal thing I'm feeling with this company. And that is if we see 
And again, recent example is the UPS contract negotiation. If we see the middle class to lower wage to upper middle class wages rise at a significant rate over the next five to 10 years, I think that'll be a definite tailwind for Discover. Uh, That's something they can probably take advantage of. Now, for me, I think with their consistent advertising over the years, I generally understood Discover's value proposition for consumers even before researching this episode. I'm not a user of the card, but I could see us looking at it for our small business if they offered us the best cashback rewards for all purchases. Obviously, they're not going to be the one you go for for a travel or entertainment card. That's going to be Amex or the airline and hotel cards that you know some are powered by Amex, some are powered by Visa and MasterCard. But that's not their niche and they don't really need to go into that. And I think they have that clear customer value proposition. They're probably the leader for that standard cashback card, I would think. There's some competition there, but a lot of companies, I mean, you look at the Chase Sapphire Reserve, you look at so many cards are going after those airline points, which I'm guilty of it. I go after those airline points for those deals, right? And a lot of people go after those, but I think that leaves an opportunity open for Discover to go after its niche that might not be growing that much, but can still be profitable. That's just the travel boom talking. That's true. They could be. They said that they over-indexed to gas. So they've been uh, gas, which I mean, like, you know, paying for gasoline purchases, (laughs) maybe electric vehicles are the downside for them, but no, uh, that would be a very obscure bear case. But they they over-indexed for everyone. (laughs) The with gasoline prices down generally across the country, that hurt them a little bit. And I think, like you mentioned there, the focus on travel and entertainment over the last 18 months for people, especially in the United States, was probably a headwind as well. So I think that's something for anyone to consider when they compare the them to Amex, Visa, MasterCard, payment volume growth. All right, future growth opportunities. Ryan, we mentioned that the payment stuff network isn't that important to their business, but potentially they're investing in it to make it more important in the future. So what do you got for us? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for I, I put the cashback debit card here, but really, I think with get more customer deposits, make make good loans. Like that's that's the recipe for growth here, and then buy back stock with the cash you get. Um Maybe the other thing right now is to invest in compliance. Obviously, that's kind of a growth opportunity to maybe appease regulators or actually improve your systems. Um, but the cash cashback debit card, I think this is maybe a good way to start a relationship with customers without having them risk hurting their credit score. So, like if you're a high schooler or um, maybe you're in college or something like that. And you don't necessarily feel ready to get a credit card yet. Getting the cashback debit card is a good program where you can kind of you can earn. I think it's one percent back on up to three thousand dollars or something like that. So it's not huge, but most people don't do that for a credit or a debit card program. So I think it's a good way to kind of get an account open and get a relationship with a lot of people um, while having it be kind of lower risk in in their eyes. Yeah, and they're not going to make much money on that given the spread on the debit card fee or what you know, whatever that tends to be. We don't have the exact number. They don't give it to us. But yeah, it's definitely good. And they said they're going to be investing marketing into this in the fall, so over the next few months, and that they're already seeing strong growth of it from it. I believe they said they're gaining like 2,000 accounts per day, which is, is good, but it's not going to have a material impact on their earnings. I think it's more of the success of this over time will show up in the loan book steadily growing. Well, I will. Them- yeah. Uh, and that leads into my future growth opportunity, which again, I have something 
it's hard to pinpoint a new thing that's going to move the needle outside of the loan book. So you really just look at it and they got to grow accounts, grow the loan book and underwrite good loans. But I think at the edges, there's things they can do to widen their competitive advantage and improve their consumer value proposition. And some people might not might argue that they don't have a competitive advantage. I would say it's clearly not as strong as someone like Amex or Visa or MasterCard, but it's not not there. It's just a moat that's not extremely strong because if you kind of look at it, I kind of invert and say, if someone tried to be the fifth payment network, would that have any success in this country? I don't think so. I really don't. It seems like it would be impossible. But one of the ways for them to widen the moat and kind of increase that value proposition for their customers is to see increasing international acceptance. They're not going to make that much money on it because as we mentioned, they don't make much money on their payment volume. But the more places that accept Discover, the greater value they can provide to customers, the greater, the better, I guess, mind share they can have where a lot of people get concerned about the um, Amex and Discover cards because of the acceptance rate, which is actually a little bit of a misnomer and not as, as we talked about in the Amex episode, they provide, they've fix those issues and discoveries fix those as well. So they continue to do that over the next decade. I think that can be a, a really strong customer value proposition to lock in their existing customers and make a better pitch to convince these new customers to join them and say, look, it doesn't matter if you're on Discover or Visa, you're going to have basically the same acceptance uh, in the United States. Okay. Highlights, lowlights. It's a simple business, but also one with some hair on the bone. So Ryan, what do you like, dislike here? I mean, obviously we like the buybacks, but I think that's a given. Yeah, uh, I would I would like for them to continue, hopefully at some point. But uh, I mean, highlights, just kind of thinking of Discover overall, it is a solid business, right? I mean, they have really high net interest margins relative to a lot of banks. They earn great returns on equity, which is a very important KPI for banks. Um I mean, you know, it's it's capital light. You're earning money with money. You're earning money with other people's money, really. I mean, done well, it's a great business model. On top of that, they also are kind of like ally financial in the sense that they're on the right side of the innovator's dilemma. Same thing with companies like SoFi being a digital only bank. They don't have to staff as many branches, so they can save on costs there and can invest those or they can pass through those cost savings in the form of higher interest savings accounts, which should attract more and more deposits, which I mean, that's just kind of a winning formula there. Low lights for me though. Um, Let me, I'll give context for listeners on the deposits just because I don't think we've given any numbers on that. So since 2018 uh, to Q2 2023, interest bearing deposits have grown at a 9% compound growth rate. So pretty strong growth there. Yeah. And then on the low light side, it felt like there was kind of a lack of transparency around the recent issues. They tried to be transparent. Like they had this public call that if you look on quarter, it just says status update. I, I, I think it was meant to be like a, you know, let's clear up, let's clear the air here with analysts. But in reality, it kind of, I mean, judging by the stock price reaction, it's made things worse. Um, it doesn't feel like there was a lot of clarity here. And maybe it's because they can't say everything. You know, they can't yeah, say, they, or maybe they didn't want to us to fire the CEO or yeah, regulators exactly. told us we couldn't, you know, buy back the stock or we wanted to please them. So, but 
it like for investors that just leaves us in a black box like we don't know how big this problem really is it sounds pretty big when you pause the buyback and you fire your ceo um so that concerns me obviously and then the other one is just the you know the uncertainty around when the buyback program will be back and maybe this is kind of the other frustration i have is that with banks there when you want them to capitalize on bad times like when the buyback is the most opportunistic is when they need to reserve the most cash like when the economy is doing poorly their valuation comes down substantially they could be having the most accretive buyback program yet that's when regulators crack down and say well yeah let's, but let's they start would've... reserving more yeah but it's but it's happening across the board right it's yeah, happening I mean, with all banks right now yeah i think yeah that's gonna happen because they wouldn't stop the buyback if their reserves were extremely high. And the reason their reserves aren't extremely high is because they did the buyback beforehand. So, and then I don't think the stock would be down if the reserves were extremely high. So no, I, but I, I mean, I think it's just, I think I like their strategy of basically when we have excess uh, cash from our reserves based on our, based on our numbers that we like to run with, and we don't have any of this regulatory overhang, which again, I guess is the bigger question. They're just going to put a buyback stock consistently indiscriminately doesn't matter what the price is and luckily for them they've generally had a low valuation when they've done it the thing for me is that and we've seen this across the board the economy starts to worsen or relative to 2020 net charge off rates rise suddenly they have to reserve for more they can't use as much money on their buyback program at a time when ideally that's when they'd be spending more so it's yeah just but the, part, the stock part of be... the nature of being a bank but the stock wouldn't be down if they over-reserved before and didn't do the buyback. So if they didn't do the buyback before, right? Because like the stock wouldn't be down. I think if net charge-offs are rising, the stock would still be coming down. Maybe. But if they aren't buying back stock beforehand, like it's just a little bit of a catch-22. Like If they aren't buying back stock, okay, then they're going to be way over-reserved and then people are going to be playing, why aren't you buying back stock? And then maybe it, the I stock get will it, get... But it's the negative of being a bank is that you have to be cautious at the times when it would be most advantageous to potentially press your advantage that's fair it's a cyclical yeah all, all right. right what about you well highlights consistent track record of profitable underwriting with the credit card business it's been years and years and years decades of well i guess we didn't know the exact numbers before they went public in 2006 but since then it's been very very consistent very very good they haven't made any really terrible mistakes on the underwriting side of things. I don't see famous last words, but I don't see any reason this will change in the immediate future. Makes me much more comfortable with the lending operations compared to say a fintech upstart, which there, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> it's just much more comfortable. Uh, they have a formula. It works. I don't see why any reason why it won't work in the future. Uh, second one, they're generally inflation protected. Third, they consistently use the excess cash to return to shareholders. They even said on one of the recent calls, and again, this was, was the old CEO that was fired, but it was recent. And they said that, look, we have our first priority when we get cash is to see where we have to invest in the business. And again, right now, they've harped on saying that we got to increase our spending on compliance. Regulators want that. And then they say, second, when we have excess cash there, we're going to buy back stock and increase the dividend. And then they say a distant, distant third which I like is bolt on acquisitions. So I think they've been very smart without destroying much capital. I mean, 
you look at that Pulse acquisition, probably a waste of money. Some of the other stuff, probably a waste of money. And I like that they're not going crazy with the $1 billion acquisition that they could use to buy back shares. And I think the fourth one, and this is more of a meta one from the investor perspective, is that I think investors constantly get scared of the lending operations presenting potential buying opportunities and a cheap stock to repurchase shares. I think a really fascinating thing to go through is there's been like five um, value investor club write-ups on Discover since 2010, maybe, or I know they actually had one before the, the great financial crisis and almost all of them to a T said something along the lines of, well, people are nervous about Discover right now because with the recession looming and it would be like 2016. They'd be like, oh yeah, but once once the recession hits next year. So I, I think that can present. Obviously, there could be recession next year. Their lending operations could get hit, but I would say that they usually have reserved themselves well for through recession to be fine, to be unless we hit a great depression, they'll they'll be okay. And just to be clear, if there is a depression, banks inherently are screwed. Like yeah. that is ha- that, you know, go revisit the Great Depression, how many banks closed? You if know, everyone, yeah, if, if people can't pay back their loans, they're they're gonna they're gonna do poorly. But I think what presents an opportunity is that everyone worries about this constantly, and that's what lets them have a PE under ten and buy back stock. Now, my low, low lights, we talked about the misclassification and the FDIC compliance stuff. Uh, like I mentioned, I did like that they aren't kind of talking about it like Wells Fargo and deflecting blame and all that stuff that got Wells Fargo in trouble and compounded that mess. On the call with the analyst, uh, which is not the one with the interim CEO, but the one, the earnings report, the CEO that got fired seemed to be very apologetic, admitted that it was his mistake. I guess that's why he got fired. But famous last words, I think it's not a giant low light. Like I think there's some highlights here on their corporate governance that they were trying to be accountable. They're not just defending their executives to keep them in line. They're thinking about the shareholders from that perspective. And as Buffett once said, there is fraud likely going on at his company, Berkshire Hathaway constantly. They just don't know where it is. There's going to be fraud going on and you know, mistakes are going to be made. Some people you're not going to have, if you have 20,000 people at your company, they're going to be someone that's a bad apple. It's going to happen from time to time. And really the only thing that you can control is your reaction to it. So I don't know all the moves behind the scenes, but it seems like Discover is acting at least from the information we have now as best they can. I think the big concern that me and Ryan have talked about is we don't know what else is there or if they don't know what else is there. But that's true with every company. So I, I feel like that's a tough low light. Yeah. I mean... That it's like we don't know what fraud could be going on at Microsoft. Yeah, it's true. Well, yeah, and part of the thing now is like there's kind of this interesting situation where it's like, okay, I wish the regulatory stuff wasn't going on, so this would be a cleaner situation. But I'm also times earnings, yeah. Yeah, but I also want to buy it cheap. So this is where kind of you make your money is can you parse through how relevant this really is? Difficulty for me is, do we have enough information to do that? It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. And sometimes, you, what's that famous quote, which probably gets people in trouble sometimes, but also can lead to good opportunities, is sometimes you got to go in with 70% of the information confirmed. Now, this kind of leads 
relates to my second low light, which is we there are unknowns around the pandemic bullwhip for the consumer economy. I think there are few historical precedents for lending operation for consumer lending operations here. You know, we have the strange kind of mortgage auto loan payment stuff right now, the affordability you know, being off the charts, student loans starting up again, interest rates rapidly rising. Discover seemed well capitalized, like we discussed. They're prepared for a lot of this stuff. If you know we hit some stuff hits the fan, they are assuming, like I mentioned, unemployment hits five percent or higher at some point soon for the reserve book. But Given that this is a road that the economy really hasn't gone down before, there could definitely be some unforeseen circumstances. And I think that's a low light that keeps me concerned right now. But, and you can say that anytime, but I think it's- Set every value true. investor club right up for the last two. No, so I mean, but especially this time, it's either positive or negative. Like there's unforeseen, look, there was nothing, like the great financial crisis and the recovery out of that, there's nothing- abnormal from a credit perspective it was a very it was a a very bad one but it was a credit cycle this one was extremely unique we've done things that have not happened ever really and the bullwhip effects i i there could be some stuff that's very very unpredictable here that no one's even looking at which could provide an opportunity or (laughs) could really hurt these businesses for years to come now let's move into the bull case i think any listeners will know with this one these are going to be simple it's (laughs) But what are some numbers you have for us, Ryan, for why the stock could work? So in the bull case, let's say the regulatory concerns get sorted out in the next 12 months. Compliance costs jump, but then kind of stagnate. So they they bolster their compliance department, but then don't have to continue increasing costs double digits. And we don't get into a massive recession. If those things happen, they should generate similar net interest margins to what they've done historically. And if they reinstate the buyback program at the current valuation, that's you're looking at greater than 20% earnings per share growth. I mean, you're you're almost looking at 20. If they bought back all with all their net income today, you're almost getting 20% earnings per share growth without the earnings even growing. So you're going to make money. And if there's any sort of multiple re-rating, right now it's trades at six times trailing earnings. The average since 2013 has been basically 11 times. If you get anywhere near that, you know this is going to be a, real, a phenomenal investment over the next five years. Yeah. I think the bull case is so easy to see if they're trading at six times earnings and five years from now, earnings have compounded at 20% a year. Well, the stock's going to work. Now, the bear case, though, I'm pretty sure we talked about all these, and there's not many numbers you can put in. We're not, for Discover, it's not much of, uh, yeah, their operating margin, like a retailer, is going to compress significantly because of wages, or there's going to be a transition to Amazon or something like that. It's more of, okay, the loans kind of blow up on them. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, they that is the like problem with banks you know yeah if if there's a really really bad economy or a dumb manager and credit cards i mean there's a reason the yields are so high on those you know it's kind of a higher risk lending asset so um i don't know my do you want to go bear case i mean like uh, my bear case is really just the loans continue to underperform. I, the compliance stuff, 
they'll be fine unless something else comes up, right? Like, that's an unknown thing. What if and a bunch of what if a bunch of VCs tweet to pull your deposits, pull your money <laughs> out of Discover? Yeah, I'm not. You're not thinking about, about that. that. You're not thinking uh, about that bear case. I'm not concerned about that. But with the compliance stuff, with the the expenses there and the regulatory stuff, I think they'll be fine. They've had some stuff like this come up in the past, and basically they just have to spend and have the workers in there and the expertise to make sure the compliance around risk management, blah blah blah, as a bank is good and. I don't think that's a big concern for me. But the biggest concern is just the loans underperforming. And there's no evidence that I should think that they will because they've been so good historically at being prudent with their loans. I don't know. It just makes you nervous every time, though. I think that's why the stock's cheap, but it's never not going to make you nervous with a bank like this. Or banking like they're a bank, essentially. Uh, but people think of them as the credit card company. Yeah, I think for me, uh, the the so there is the downside is zero, right? With any bank, like if if there's a run on the bank, obviously the equity gets canceled essentially. But I think or the, and, and the loans, yeah, like yeah, that side that side of the balance sheet too. Yeah, the. I think the more likely bear case is that maybe they're downplaying the regulatory issue and like it's not super clear to investors and, and maybe things get worse. Um, they aren't able to reinstate their buyback program for a while. We're looking at tighter net interest margins for a few years. Any sort of worsening in the economy, you know, they're it's 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 cyclical, like you said. So that you know, you're gonna get lower earnings over the next years if the economy is worse. But I think that kind of leads to the more or less interested, which is it always seems it it has a cheap valuation for a reason. It doesn't just get there because people start selling the stock. Like there's, there's a reason that stocks like this get cheap and it's typically because things like regulatory issues, things where there's a valid reason to believe things could get worse for them. Sorry, Which you. I'm more interested because I, I, I it's incredibly oh, yeah. cheap more than anything yeah. else. I mean, it's just super cheap. Yeah. If, yeah. Now I will say trail in EPS maybe isn't the number to look at here. If they're, it's kind of like ally, if they're able to thread the needle over the next uh, 18 months you're gonna make a lot of money yeah yeah the i think yeah we don't definitely don't look at the trailing pe in a vacuum i think with these it's really tough it kind of comes into the the bull effect of the pandemic financial disruptions where i think you kind of look at a combination of pre-pandemic earnings during the pandemic earnings uh, and then what you think maybe they could have post-pandemic because I think it should be higher in a normal environment because of the inflation, right? And the pre-pandemic numbers, but it's definitely not as good as when people were having the stimulus checks and not spending money on anything else. But I'm definitely more interested. I think this is a clear example. And now well, this is the first time we looked at it, so it's going to take us a little bit longer to research, but this seems like unless we find anything else or whatever, it seems like one of those opportunities where people are overrating the news in the short term. And if the franchise is still intact, which I, I saw no indications that I think it wouldn't be, and the business model is 
not broken, which I didn't see any indications that it is. You're getting a company that has a strong track record of growing its earning per share at a PE of six, and they can probably earn that in the top of the cycle or the middle of the cycle uh, for that earnings ratio. Yeah, during the bottom of the cycle, during a tough period for consumer lending business, they're not going to earn that money. But through the cycle, if we look at the last, let's give another context for the listeners, from 2018 to 2022, so five years, they generated a cumulative $16.4 billion in net income. I think they could do higher the next five years. And given the buyback program, that makes me definitely more interested in this stock because it seems like a good business, maybe not as good as American Express, probably not as good as American Express, but a good one trading at a very, very cheap valuation with low expectations from investors. What would you rather own, this or Amex? At the same price, oh, man. No, not at the same price. Uh, that's at what I mean, at, at the current price, yeah. That's a tough one. I think... So for context for listeners, Amex is probably trading around, given their guidance, around 14 times earnings. Discover here, I think, is around six, but probably gets a little bit higher given seven or eight, seven or eight times forward, maybe. Maybe, yeah. And again, it's very uncertain. They don't really give out guidance for a reason. I would lean discover, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely more interested. What, what about you? The only you, problem is it's just like, I sometimes worry, we haven't really owned banks or we haven't had that much interest in banks. And maybe it's just been kind of like our, our evolution as investors until maybe now. And I worry that we're like getting interested in these banks at potentially, like we're interested in Discover right when we figure out there's a bunch of regulatory issues. Maybe that's not like the best time to invest in a bank, you know, but could be wrong. Yeah. If it's a Wells Fargo situation, it definitely isn't. Solomon yeah. Brothers. I guess that wasn't really a bank, but sort of. Uh, yeah. I mean, kind of. Yeah. Not the same, not the same type. Yeah. But I'm definitely more interested. There is that concern, though. For any listener, don't just look at the PE and say earnings per share have grown like this. Like, if you just look at those two numbers in a vacuum, yeah, it's obvious buy, but everyone can look at that. So there are clearly reasons people aren't buying the stock and you kind of got to decide whether you believe in them. Okay. I think that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to be covering Sprouts Farmers Market. Uh, we're going to be doing the monthly Arch Capital episode. So we're going to go through why we own it, risk, all that good stuff with kind of that unique format, but similar stuff going over the business, all that. Uh, so yeah, that'll be a fun one next week. We've owned that in, for, for a long time now. Let's get the disclosure though. As a reminder... We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Next week, a little teaser. We'll have a sub on the power hour. So for for me. So that could be exciting, I guess, for anyone that maybe everybody check it out. Everybody wish Brett a fun vacation on his European cruise. That's right. That's right. I will be on vacation. So don't tweet at me. Okay. Thank you everyone uh, for listening again. And we'll see you next time. 